host, Dr. Scott Bay, bringing you another hour of mental health-related news, everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, how to improve your relationships, and how to make sense of media reports about the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness. All that delivered to you without the hype and distortion of other media sources, with the benefit of almost 25 years in the practice of psychiatry, and with the goal of reducing the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it, as well as better informing the general public about mental health issues. And welcome again. This is the June 22nd, 2016 edition of Psychiatry Today, pre-recorded for airing at 7 p.m. on that date and other times when the podcast will be played back on americaswebradio.com as well as at your leisure on that website or from iTunes. Once again, a shout-out to all of you who download this podcast from iTunes. Deeply, deeply appreciate your support. By the way, let me also give a shout-out to all fathers everywhere. Hope you enjoyed this past Sunday, Father's Day. And tonight, uh, we're going to start out this week's podcast with a follow-up from what we talked about last week and a new article related to that issue. Uh, You'll recall that, sadly, last week we talked about the mental health implications of the horrific massacre that took place in Orlando. Um, And at the time I recorded the podcast, uh, only limited information was available about the shooter, his history, his background, his possible motives. Quite honestly, in my opinion, since then, we still have more speculation than facts. Uh, But nonetheless, um, there's been a lot of talk about how he was found to have been at the club where he shot all those people and killed 49 people before uh, that he was frequenting gay chat sites. Um, There's been a lot of speculation. Was he conflicted about his own sexuality? Was he casing his potential targets? Knowing the trend of sociopathic behavior the way I do, I would tend to think it was the latter. Of course, we can't know whether he was conflicted about his sexuality or not. Unfortunately, there are men who are, who ironically become deeply homophobic. But regardless, um, clearly this man was filled with a great deal of hate. And that leads us to uh, our first article we're going to talk about tonight. Actually, before we get into that, I do want to mention another important mental health implication of what has taken place. If you just look at what has happened in the Orlando community, in rapid succession, they had a promising young singer 
be gunned down in a murder-suicide by a, a deranged fan or stalker or somebody, and followed by the killings of 49 people in the Pulse uh, gay nightclub. And that was quickly followed by a two-year-old boy from Nebraska who was killed by an alligator while with his family at a Disney resort. So this left the Orlando community positively reeling. And it is very impressive how the community came together uh, to support one another, to uh, combat the feelings of shock and grief and disbelief and anger, uh, to make sure that people who were hurt uh, or lost loved ones uh, knew that there was love and support, uh, knew that, that people cared, uh, pitched in to help in any way they could. And that includes uh, the family of that two-year-old boy. Uh, I saw something in the newspaper uh, from Sunday, the uh, <clears throat> 19th, showing that they very much appreciated the tremendous and overwhelming support they had gotten, not only from the community, but the country as a whole. Uh, so I did want to just mention that uh, indicates some very positive aspects of how people can come together in times of tremendous, tremendous grief and tragedy. Well, to our first article then, it's called, Is There a Psychology of Hate That We Need to Understand Better? Brain scientists haven't pinned down why some people act on the feeling that is the feeling of hate. Well, you know, clearly I think the answer to the question the article raises is, yes, obviously there is a psychology of hate that we need to understand better or that we hope to be able to understand better in order to prevent more of these horrible hate-related crimes that we have experienced recently. The Orlando mass murder was, quote, full of hate, according to uh, what President Obama said. But lots of Americans are consumed by hate, so what makes one hater unleash violence on hundreds of innocent people in a gay nightclub? An interesting question the author of the article poses. It's a shame that we have to casually consider the reality that lots of Americans are consumed by hate, isn't it? The science of hate is complicated, and there's not a single definitive answer. But psychologists, psychiatrists, and sociologists think American culture is more permeated than ever by hate and hateful expression and hate-inspired violence is more prevalent. We're seeing more of these kinds of mass attacks than in the past, and it's usually not for just one reason. It's multidimensional, says Abby Ferver, a professor of sociology at the University of Colorado, who studies hate groups and has written about hate crime in America. 
She says psychological factors might be one factor, but there are other cultural and sociological factors. Anger is always there because it's a human emotion. That says Liza Gold, a psychiatrist and professor of psychiatry at Georgetown University's medical school. She says the issue is acting on it. In fact, she says most people filled with hate do not act on it. She says they just quietly stew. Little comfort there, isn't it? There is interest in the psychology of people who commit violence, but we have not yet identified the brain chemical that makes science say, well, this person has too much of neurochemical A. Well, Dr. Gold certainly has a point, but I question whether it would ever be possible to narrow down behavior like this to a relative excess or deficit of a certain brain chemical. Uh, it raises an interesting question, though. Uh, might it be interesting to do some highly sophisticated investigations uh, in terms of an autopsy on mass killers like this to see uh, if any patterns could be found among people who commit crimes this way see if there were any patterns that could be discerned in their brain chemistry or brain physiology. But if we carry that speculative scenario out even further, okay, so what if we did? Uh, certainly doesn't mean you can start going around screening people uh, for these tests to see if they might be a candidate for committing a crime like this. We're talking about this again because of, uh, of course, the deaths of the 49 people who were enjoying Latino night at Orlando's Pulse nightclub a week ago Sunday, killed by a man using an assault-style weapon before he was killed himself in a shootout with police. The inevitable debate that followed has devolved into a search for blame, stirring up a poisonous goulash of arguments over partisan politics, mental illness, gun control, Islamic bigotry, and terrorism. But at the core of it is anger and hate. Our culture is much angrier, much more hate-filled than ever before, and our politics this year exemplifies that, according to Ferber. She says it's much more acceptable to express anger and act on it. And with access to the Internet, haters can find support and applause for their feelings. Hate usually comes from a deeply insecure place in the human personality, says Harold Koplowitz, a leading child and adolescent psychiatrist and president of the Child Mind Institute Hate, he says, can be a symptom of personality disorder, most often found among young men in their 20s, an age when the brain's prefrontal cortex may not com be completely developed. What he's referring to is that prior research shows that the brain pathways 
that go from the uh, deeper parts of the brain out to the prefrontal cortex don't completely finish growing and maturing until around age 25. Such men in this demographic have higher suicide rates. Uh, that is, young men in their 20s with this personality disorder. And they tend to take risks rather than assess costs. They may be cut off from their families, unsuccessful at work or in school, and angry about it all. Now that is a profile worth observing. Well, we're going to take our first commercial break. We'll continue this discussion and have other mental health-related news after that. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. 45 years of experience is behind the most trusted name in auto transportation. Passport Transport, the first and finest today. That's why Passport Transport is the preferred auto transport for major auto manufacturers, concours, museums, tours, and collectors, and should be your choice from across the state to across the country. When you have the need, go to PassportTransport.com and enjoy the peace of mind referenced experience will give you. Passport Transport. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. And, uh, of course, sadly, we are talking about the mental health-related implications of yet another mass shooting, this one the worst in United States history, which took place a week ago last Sunday. And the article we're talking about discusses the psychology of hate and the frustrating manner in which we know so little and therefore are not anywhere near being in a position to head off such horrific crimes. Uh, there is a certain percentage of young adults who feel alienated, who grab hold of a group of haters and say, I am part of that group. According to Dr. Koplowitz, again, of the Child Mind Institute, he says, Haters like company. It makes them feel better. It justifies their hate. Haters rarely hate alone. They encourage others to hate along with them. They want peer 
validation. I tend to agree, but I also think that while there, that's true, there, there certainly are some people like this who wind up being very, very much isolated and alone, um, although they certainly gravitate uh, toward the hateful message of uh, groups that are already out there. Haters are usually people who feel victimized in some way. They feel their culture, religion, or lifestyle are threatened. They feel anxious about their masculinity. Uh, the most recent mass shootings were committed by males. They feel threatened by visible cultural change, such as growing acceptance of gay people. Or perhaps we can uh, extend that to the example of the man who killed a member of parliament in England recently who was angry at the cultural change brought about by immigration in the UK. They feel victimized by economic insecurity, uh, which again they can conveniently blame on uh, other groups. What's different now is haters' ability to connect with others. Before the internet and social media, people had to work harder to find each other. Now they don't. It's much easier to hold a bizarre idea. If you see all these other people believe it too, there is a mob psychology to this. Social media provides the mob. And uh, as we've seen in other cases, it can also recruit people to these hateful causes. Uh, just think of ISIS and, and how uh, it helps to recruit people and encourage people to commit terrorist acts in their homeland. Can hate turned to violence be predicted through brain science? Absolutely not yet. And who knows if ever, neuroscientists have made progress in understanding more about brain function, but there is still a ways to go in understanding hate and violent anger, according to Cameron Craddock, the uh, director of imaging for this. So Dr. Craddock, he's again an imaging expert, says, we have not yet figured out what parts or structures of the brain are different in people who have a psychiatric disorder. Uh, well, that's very true, uh, especially when it comes to the brains of mass murderers. Uh, although, again, not sure how much it would help if we determined that someday. Again, what do you do with that knowledge? Do you just go around screening people who... Uh, you think meet that profile? Um, I'm not so sure that would go over too well. In one brain scan experiment, people were asked to look at pictures of people they hate and pictures of people they don't hate to see which areas of the brain were engaged. But looking at pictures and acting on hatred aren't the same thing, nor is the brain response consistent for all people. It may be the Orlando killer was motivated by hatred of gays or rage about his life. He might have been inspired by terrorism. 
He might have been mentally ill. More likely, it's a mix. It's very hard to disentangle people's motives. Simply writing off the shooter as insane or evil isn't enough. That would be an abandonment of any attempt to explain motivations. Well, so the debate, I'm sure, will continue, and uh, perhaps there'll be more updates I can bring you next week. We'll see. Uh, but in any case, uh, you know, our hearts and prayers go out to those who suffered losses in Orlando. And again, I sincerely regret too often having to discuss issues like this on this podcast. Well, next mental health related issue that we're going to talk about is also not the most pleasant thing, unfortunately. Um, I have <clears throat> a military mental health segment for this week's podcast for you. And uh, it is an article about the high military suicide rates. Some people who are experts in this area are very fearful that this is now the new normal. Seven years after the rate of suicides by soldiers more than doubled, the Army has failed to reduce the tragic pace of self-destruction, and experts worry, therefore, that the problem is a new normal. According to Carl Castro, a psychologist who retired from the Army in 2013 when he was a colonel overseeing behavioral health research programs, it's very clear that nothing that the Army has done has resulted in suicide rates coming down. The sharp rise in the Army's suicide rate from 2004 through 2009 coincided with unusually heavy demands on the nation's all-volunteer military, as hundreds of thousands of troops, most of them in the Army, deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan. The vast majority have since come home, but suicide rates remain stubbornly high. The Army's suicide rate for active duty soldiers averaged nearly 11 per 100,000 from September 11, 2001, the date of the attacks, until shortly after the Iraq invasion in 2004. It more than doubled over the next five years, and with the exception of a spike in 2012, has remained largely constant at 24 to 25 per 100,000, that is roughly 20 to 25% higher than the civilian population of comparable age and gender composition as the military. A strikingly higher rate. Because the Army is the largest service branch in the military, the Pentagon suicide statistics reflected a similar increase. Seven years of relative stability at these profoundly higher rates may well be the new normal, according to David Rudd, president of the University of Memphis, who served on a panel of scientists that reviewed military mental health programs and issued 
a critical report in 2014. Rudd worries that a sense of heightened concern that gripped Congress and the Army when military suicides spiked has dissipated. You don't see any significant outrage about it now, he said. The Army used to post suicide statistics promptly each month, but data are now published by the Pentagon each quarter and often can be delayed for months. I do think there is a sort of creeping mindset of, well, this is just how it is now, according to Craig Bryan, Executive Director of the National Center for Veteran Studies at the University of Utah. The sense of urgency about this problem has started to fade away. Deaths, however, persist at only two regular intervals. In late January, Army Major Troy Don Wayman, age 44, fatally shot himself in his home near Fort Hood, Texas, according to the Army Times. Wayman had deployed five times in his career, including twice to Iraq. Fort Hood, one of the Army's largest bases, still suffers more than one suicide per month on average, a level unabated for several years. I should say that there has been some research that the Army has done on this issue, and oddly enough, they have not found a correlation between multiple and uh, short interval between deployments and increased rates of suicide that's counterintuitive to what you might think. Scientists still don't know exactly why suicides increased so dramatically in the military. Major studies have shown no direct link between the deaths and being deployed overseas, and suicide increased even among soldiers who did not deploy. Many experts remain certain that combat is a crucial factor of suicide and that after the attacks of September 11th, the Army came under enormous pressure. Scientists argue that deployment does not always equate to combat. Many troops are sent to non-combat zones or serve on large bases with little exposure to violence. Lieutenant Colonel Chris Ivany, Army Director of Behavioral Health Care, said mental illness is linked to suicide and noted that the illness rates have also risen. Combat experiences are known to cause behavioral health problems such as post-traumatic stress disorder or depression. Uh, so the point there may be it's a combination of the increased risk of these mental illnesses from service in the military and a higher rate of mental illness among those who wind up joining the military. All right, we're going to take another commercial break. We'll continue with this article and have other mental health-related news coming up later. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call. And I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. 
Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. We're talking about how some experts regret that too little is being done about the high rate of military suicides and that there may even be complacency that this is the new normal, especially in the Army. Suicide rose during a period of war, and it's just implausible to me to discount the role that being at war might play on the changing environment of Army service, according to Michael Schoenbaum, a scientist with the National Institute of Mental Health, who's involved with a $97 million ongoing study into suicide in the Army. Schoenbaum and others say lower suicide rates in the military before wars in Iraq and Afghanistan made sense. Soldiers in a period of peace have advantages that should make them less susceptible to self-destructive urges. Unlike many civilian peers, soldiers have steady, consistent jobs and health insurance, general stability, a sense of purpose, and are screened for mental and physical issues before entering the military. He says you would expect a particular version of the healthy worker effect. Fifteen years of sustained conflict may have altered that effect. Well, again, we can only hope that somehow or another the Pentagon will figure this out and do something to bring down 
these elevated rates of suicide in the military compared to the civilian population. Which brings me to the next article that I want to bring to you, and this has to do with a 10-year systematic review of general overall suicide prevention strategies, not uh, confined either to the civilian or the military population. Uh, a major international review of suicide prevention has confirmed that some methods do work in reducing suicides, whereas others currently in use still have little proven effectiveness. Worldwide, there are more than 800,000 suicides every year. Sadly, during the time it will take to play this podcast, between three and four people will take their lives. Although for every successful suicide, and, you know, it's unfortunate use of language, but that means someone who tries to take their life and, and does so, there are around 30 attempts. More people are killed by suicide than by war and homicide put together. In younger people, aged 15 to 29, suicide is the second leading cause of death. Information on suicide prevention is urgently needed. Now a major new study from the expert platform on mental health focus on depression and the European College of Neuropsychopharmacology has evaluated strategies for suicide prevention. This research is published in the journal Lancet Psychiatry. One of the main findings is that restricting easy access to ways of taking your own life is a key element, as is shown by the drop in suicides in countries which decreased the number of pills in packets of analgesics, such as aspirin or Tylenol. Other effective measures include physical barriers being erected at known suicide spots, such as high bridges. The report concludes that if an impulsive attempted suicide is deterred by these measures, often that is enough to save a life. Some medical treatments have been shown to be effective in certain populations. For example, the drugs lithium and clozapine have proven benefits in some populations. Medications for depression have been shown to reduce suicides in the uh, age group over 75 in particular. In children and adolescents, Serotonin-acting antidepressant medications are considered to have the potential to increase suicidal thoughts that, absent any evidence, that actual suicides increase. However, it is important to note that untreated depression in children is also a risk, so that medication for depression should be considered for use in those populations with close monitoring. Other strategies to prevent suicide include gatekeeper training, uh, special training of general practitioners, professionals at schools, and at the workplace, 
to recognize at-risk behavior, which was also found to be useful, but only if integrated with other methods of suicide prevention. And then, of course, follow-up care of people who have attempted suicide, strongly recommended. That's fairly obvious. One of the authors of this paper said, we reviewed nearly 1,800 scientific papers on suicide published between 2005 and 2015. We found that there is no single way of preventing suicide. However, implementation of the evidence-supported methods described in this study, including public and physician education and awareness, together with appropriate legislation, has the potential to change public health strategies in suicide prevention plans. With these measures, we can significantly reduce the number of deaths due to suicide. The president of the European College of Neuropsychopharmacology, Professor Guy Goodwin of Oxford, commented, the European College of Neuropsychopharmacology is proud to have supported this network of colleagues across Europe to conduct this definitive review of what works in suicide prevention. As is still not sufficiently known, suicide is always among the commonest causes of death in young people. Policies to reduce it need to be evidence-based and this review highlights where evidence does and does not exist currently. Well, uh, hopefully a study like that will spur um, more resources being directed to suicide prevention strategies that are known to be effective and save some lives. For me, one of the very interesting take-home points about that article is if you simply put physical barriers in place or use deterrence, uh, that that actually is effective. Um, <clears throat> limiting the number of tablets in a package of pain relievers uh, or uh, preventing access to high bridges. Uh, it is well known that the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco, California, for example, uh, while on the one hand being incredibly beautiful and picturesque, uh, very sadly is a common place for uh, people to commit suicide. Uh, but um, by putting messages about suicide hotlines and uh, phones uh, there that people can just pick up and uh, talk to someone, if they're in a crisis, uh, and then physically putting up barriers to prevent people from being able to jump, uh, you know, there's an obvious example of where uh, lives can be saved uh, if someone is delayed or deterred long enough in committing the act to where somehow or another their more rational self takes over and they're able to change their mind, uh, then a life has been saved. Um, and uh, using a relatively uh, simple method.
Well, uh, another part of what goes on typically getting back to military mental health issues and the disturbingly and alarmingly increased rates of suicide in the military is stigma about mental health issues and about getting treatment for said issues. And the Army is aware that uh, they need to work on that, reduce the warrior mentality in terms of uh, stigmatization about owning up to having a mental illness, getting help with it, and also diminishing fear that doing so will somehow lower their esteem in the eyes of their peers, in the eyes of their commanders, in the eyes of those under their command, uh, or interfere with their career progress in terms of promotions and, and so on. But uh, in general, the stigma associated with mental illness prevents a lot of people from getting help, and that's what this next article uh, we're going to consider talks about. Even when help is just a click away, stigma is still a roadblock. Stigma is a major barrier preventing people with mental health issues from getting the help they need. Even in a private and anonymous setting online, someone with greater self-stigma is less likely to take that first step to get information about mental health concerns and counseling. That, according to a new Iowa State University study, self-stigma is a powerful obstacle to overcome. The study was designed specifically to measure how participants responded when given the opportunity to learn more online about mental health concerns and university counseling services. Of the 370 college students who participated in the study, only 8.7% clicked the link for mental health information and 9% sought counseling information. However, those numbers dropped to 2.2% and 3.5% respectively among people with high self-stigma. That shows exactly how stigma can prevent people from getting the help they need. And we'll continue discussing this article and have more mental health information when we come back from our next commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Right back. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Your auto love and investment demands the best, and for 45 years, Passport Transport has been meeting those demands. From manufacturers to the one-car collectors and all other facets of the auto industry and antique auto hobby. The first and the finest with unequaled service and peace of mind. Passport Transport, your auto transportation company. Contact PassportTransport.com with your need today. Passport Transport. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend 
but needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay. You're a psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. We're talking about an Iowa State study showing that stigma is a powerful roadblock to people getting mental health treatment. It's not just the fear of seeing a counselor or a therapist. It's actually when people are sitting at home or on their phone just their own stigma they harbor within themselves prevents them from even learning more information about depression or counseling or whatever other mental health struggles they may be experiencing. Uh, the study was published in the Journal of Counseling and sorry, the Journal of Counseling Psychology. It illustrates the need for better stigma interventions, in other words, uh, better efforts at reducing stigma, uh, the lead researchers are developing and testing different online interventions uh, that might not be subject to uh, people avoiding them because of the self-stigma they harbor, but it's difficult because such efforts are often rejected. A lot of people with higher levels of stigma about mental health issues won't even entertain the possibility of a stigma intervention because they see the intervention as going to therapy to be more open to therapy. It's like telling someone who doesn't like vegetables to eat some broccoli to get over it. However, the interventions often work. In a previous study, participants were more open to receiving help-seeking information after writing a brief essay about a personal value. The challenge is designing the intervention so it's not threatening to a person with greater stigma. One in five people struggle with mental illness and many don't get help. Those who do wait an average of 11 years before finally seeking treatment. Distressed students in the study we're more likely to click the link for information, 8.5% probability for those with high self-stigma compared to 17.1%, about twice as much for those with low self-stigma. Distress is like the gas pedal and stigma the brake. Unfortunately, by the time someone reaches a high level of distress, he or she is often struggling to function. Identifying distressed students can be difficult 
because distress affects people in different ways. They struggle with schoolwork or with family relationships and friendships. If it gets bad enough, they might struggle with hygiene or start strongly contemplating suicide. It's not just that they feel bad, it's that functionally they're impaired. According to the National Alliance on Mental Illness, three-quarters of all chronic mental illness begins by age 24. For many young adults, this is a time of transition. Going to college, working full-time, and moving away from home, adding to the reasons they may not seek help. This is another consideration when designing interventions and educational information. In the paper, researchers suggested adding brief self-affirmation activities to websites frequented by at-risk populations, as well as links to additional mental health and treatment information. Self-affirmation interventions could also be incorporated into outreach events organized by university counseling centers. Well, in general, it's clear there's a great deal of work that has to be done to reduce the stigma associated with having mental health problems and seeking help for them. While it is a lot better than it has been in decades past, there's still uh, a lot more work that needs to be done, and the stigma is a major obstacle to people getting the help that they need. Next, we're going to talk about a study that may have found why it is that there are differences between men and women when it comes to their ability to work cooperatively in groups. It turns out that scientists have found differences in brain activity between men and women. Studies have long shown that when faced with a problem that must be solved by cooperating with others, males and females approach the task differently. Now, researchers at the Stanford University School of Medicine have discovered how those differences are reflected in brain activity. When the researchers asked people to cooperate with a partner and then tracked the brain activity of both participants, they found that males and females had different patterns of brain activity. The new findings were published online on June the 8th in Scientific Reports, and they could offer some clues into how cooperative behavior may have evolved differently between males and females, and could eventually help researchers develop new ways to enhance cooperative behavior. It's not that either males or females are better at cooperating or can't cooperate with each other. Rather, there's just a difference in how they're cooperating. Cooperation between family members, friends, co-workers, and even governments around the world is viewed as a cornerstone of human society. But not everyone cooperates equally, as anyone who's worked on a group project knows. And one factor shaping a person's approach to cooperation is gender. Previous behavioral studies have found that women cooperate more 
when they're being watched by other women, that men tend to cooperate better in large groups, and that while a pair of men might cooperate better than a pair of women, in a mixed-sex pair, the woman tends to be more cooperative. Theories have circulated about why this is, but the brain science behind them has been scarce. To figure out how cooperation is reflected in the brains of men and women who are actively cooperating, rather than just thinking about cooperating while lying in a machine, the Stanford researchers turned to a technique called hyperscanning. Hyperscanning involves simultaneously recording the activity in two people's brains while they interact. And instead of using an MRI that requires participants to lie perfectly still and flat, the scientists used near-infrared spectroscopy in which probes are attached to a person's head to record brain function, allowing them to sit upright and interact more naturally. The 222 participants in the study were each assigned a partner. Pairs consisted of two males, two females, or a male and a female. Then, while wearing the near-infrared spectroscopy probes, each person sat in front of a computer across the table from their partner. Partners could see each other, but were instructed not to talk. Instead, they were asked to press a button when a circle on the computer screen changed color. The goal, to press the button simultaneously with their partner. After each try, the pair were told who had pressed the button sooner and how much sooner. They had 40 tries to get their timing as close as possible. On average, male-male pairs performed better than female-female pairs at timing their button pushes more closely. However, the brain activity in both same-sex pairs was highly synchronized during the activity, meaning they had high levels of what is called interbrain coherence. Within same-sex pairs, increased coherence was correlated with better performance on the cooperation task. However, the location of coherence differed between male-male and female-female pairs. Surprisingly, male-female pairs did as well as male-male pairs at the cooperation task, even though they didn't show coherence. Since the brains of males and females show different patterns of activity during the exercise, more research might shed light on how sex-related differences in the brain inform cooperation strategy, at least when it comes to this particular type of cooperation. The study is quite exploratory. It certainly isn't probing cooperation in all its manifestations. There could be other cooperative tasks, for instance, in which female-female pairs do better than males. And the researchers noted they hadn't measured activity in all parts of the brain. Interbrain coherence may have been present in other regions of the brain that weren't examined during the task. 
as they continue to study what in the brain underlies cooperation, the scientists' results could help explain how cooperation evolved in humans, and whether cooperation was selected for differently in males and females, as well as inform methods that use biofeedback to teach cooperation skills. There are people with disorders like autism who have problems with social rec uh, social cognition, and researchers are hoping to learn enough information from studies like this to be able to design more effective therapies for them. <clears throat> so there you have it. Obviously, the experiment is a very artificial situation, uh, but still kind of interesting that scientists see differences in brain activity uh, that may back up the oft-made observation that women are better able to work cooperatively with others on a task than men. And finally on tonight's podcast, a little bit about ADHD medications. Young children who take Ritalin, Adderall, or other stimulants for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder from early on in life are at no more risk for substance abuse in later adolescents and teens without ADHD, according to Mercy of Michigan study. But they found that those who start the medication later, like in adolescence or middle or high school, are still at high risk of substance use. Well, that's going to wrap it up for tonight's show. I hope you have a wonderful, stress-free week until we get together next time. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.